Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. So folks, uh, today uh, we're going to have an opportunity to talk about digital health and behavior change, and we are incredibly fortunate, and I feel incredibly fortunate to have uh, Roy Rosen on uh, the podcast show today. Roy uh, is the Chief Innovation Officer at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine, otherwise known as Penn Medicine. Uh, he's been there for about five years, and in that time, he has uh, piloted nearly 100 projects and has really driven uh, with his colleagues measurable progress in things such as lowering preventable readmission rates, lowering preventable ED visits, improving adherence to medications, improving uh, preventive screening rates, uh, such as with colonoscopies, uh, improving the use of uh, appropriate use of antibiotics, uh, otherwise known as antibiotic stewardship, and improving blood pressure control. So he's done quite a bit in a relatively short period of time. Prior to joining uh, UPenn as the Chief Innovation Officer, Roy was at Intuit for about 18 years. He served as their first Vice President of Innovation. Uh, and of course, Intuit is a leading uh, software company best known for two products, Quicken, uh, which is a personal financial management software, and TurboTax, which is a tax preparation software. Uh, in this role, he uh, led changes in how Intuit managed new business creation and uh, really accelerated the ability of uh, their teams to um, radically experiment uh, much quicker and at a lower cost. Um, his, uh, his activities really dramatically increased their entrepreneurial activity with uh, annual new releases increasing from only about five per year to 30 per year and their time to market decreased from about uh, one year to, uh, to a few months. So uh, Intuit has really done uh, very well. It's uh, appeared on the Forbes list of the most innovative companies in the world. And again, Roy was, uh, was clearly uh, critical uh, in that. And prior to actually being the chief uh, of innovation at uh, Intuit, Roy was uh, actually in management as an executive and uh, his team at Quicken achieved record profitability and product leadership and grew to 14 million consumers. Um, uh, outside of his current role at Penn, Roy also continues to advise startups and Fortune 100 companies that are building technologies to make a meaningful difference in people's lives. Um, uh, going a little bit further back, uh, Roy actually graduated from Harvard College with honors, and he received, received his MBA from Stanford University. So again, uh, just a fantastic uh, resume and background and just a track record of uh, tremendous achievement. Uh, Roy, I uh, just want to say welcome to uh, Creating a New Healthcare. How are you doing today? I'm good, Zev. Thanks for having me. Well, Roy, I, I know you are super, super busy. I have uh, heard this from people who have been around you. You you move at the speed of light. So I want to dive right into it with you, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. So um, so you, you came from this amazing background. I mean, you spent 18 years at Intuit, and you, your career there 
uh, both as an executive and as a, as an innovation uh, person uh, lead there, you really span the early years of software and also the emergence of digital technology. So you, you just have this uh, amazing background. I'm just wondering, and I ask this question, uh, people who come into healthcare who are world-class, uh, you know, back, who have world-class backgrounds in digitech and design. And so I want to ask you this question. You've been in healthcare for about five years, I think it is. What, if you could remember when you first came into healthcare, um, with fresh eyes, uh, and, and, you know, just really bringing in this really new perspective, were, were there any things about healthcare that sort of struck you in terms of, wow, I can't believe they're doing it this way. I think I could do this better. We could bring some, you know, real opportunities here. Were there any sort of first impressions that you can recall in the last, you know, your first years in, in, in healthcare? Yeah, wow. You know, it's, uh, so five years ago is a long time now. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I remember most is, is simply, you know, coming in and seeing these extremely mission-driven colleagues. I mean, there's so many smart and truly mission-driven people uh, in healthcare, and, and it was hard to to move ideas forward. You know, there, a lot of people had insights, and it wasn't clear what do you do with all of those insights. I think that um, you know, Penn Medicine and a lot of top academic medical centers have always been excellent at, at a whole range of innovation before I ever showed up, uh, particularly, you know, new drug discoveries and, and medical devices uh, and, and things that were, you know, kind of core to, to the healthcare world. In, in care delivery, it was a little harder. Um, it wasn't a specific um, thing that stood out to me. Uh, you know, and in fact, it was a tremendous amount of phenomenal investment that enabled our team to do a lot of our work. Uh, you know, before I ever showed up, our um, RIS group had made a lot of investments in um, making data available. <clears throat> if they hadn't done that, a lot of the innovations and, and interventions that we ended up designing would not have been possible. So so I, I kind of feel like I was more standing on the shoulders of, of what other people did than coming in and saying, wow, this is this is really broken. Um, I think it was more just full of opportunity and, and a lot of people who wanted to change the system. And, and, and there was just a lot of friction around. Mm -hmm. You know, as I was having you, you, you mentioned this idea of healthcare delivery and improving delivery. And I was just having this conversation with someone this morning trying to explain to them the difference between, let's say, discoveries in, in clinical science or in medical science versus discoveries and innovations and in delivery. How, how would you, I, I actually, sort of stumbled on trying to answer that question to this person how, and they were outside of healthcare. So uh, sure. really didn't get it. How would you, how would you explain what it is you do, what you improve or what opportunities you saw, who was it helping in what ways? Yeah. In some ways I start with what we don't do in my group. So when, when I look at Penn now, uh, there's just incredible work going on in things like uh, immunotherapy and gene therapy. You know, I, I have colleagues here and people like uh, Dr. Carl June who can, train your immune system to find and, and uh, attack and, and kill cancer cells, kill tumors. You know, it's remarkable work in, in the therapeutics world. And we, we don't do that in my group. Um, I think that uh, Penn has made great investments and is doing well there. And I have other colleagues who are making fundamental discoveries, like um, one of my colleagues who was able to turn um, tumor cells and, and make them glow. Uh, you know, so a, a surgeon who's doing surgery can, make sure they got all of the cancer out. 
Um, th those are fundamental discoveries of science that um, are being discovered at the bench and, and brought forward by, by many of my colleagues here. You know, when I think about what we do and when, when I define care delivery, it, it's, it's sort of the interactions between people in the healthcare system to, to get to different outcomes um, in their interactions with us, right? So when I think about chronic care management or chronic disease management, um, when I think about um, what we have to do for everything that ranges from high blood pressure and hypertension to high readmissions rates and why, why are people coming back to the hospital so frequently, those are care delivery issues, um, and that's really where we tend to focus. You, you know, I was just uh, in preparing for this conversation with you, um, I, I read some of the articles that you were uh, quoted in and, and some of the uh, news uh, paper interviews. And there's this quote um, that sort of now comes to the fore for me. It's, you said this, um, and I think this might have been in the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of the local Philadelphia papers back in uh, June uh, 2016. You said many of the big costly health problems out there have to do with human decision making and how people interact with systems. Uh, behavioral science is critical. Design is critical. So can you say some more about that? Yeah, you know, so it was interesting, even when I was thinking about um, what to do after leaving Silicon Valley, the, I think the world of healthcare is an interesting one in so many ways. It's just changing so fast right now. And the, the role of someone who's not clinical like me uh, has changed a lot as well. Uh, in fact, I remember reading this article um, uh, and it was, you know, a while back, but it was Zeke Emanuel, who, who's since become a good friend of mine here at Penn. And, and Zeke was saying that really, if you're going to fundamentally change the healthcare system, reform, you know, this $3.2 trillion of cost we have, you know, the way you're going to have to do it is, is to make people healthier. You know, that, that really struck me as a, as a really laudable and exciting mission to pursue. And so as we, as we look at like what is driving those costs, I've heard several colleagues now say that the vast majority of those costs are, are driven by chronic disease. Um, and that disease and the costs related to it are really not due to um, genetic or environmental factors, but because of choices and decisions that people make. You know, this has to do with whether you smoke and what you eat and whether you exercise. You know, those, those types of um, uh, um, decisions that, that are just part of everyday life are, are huge drivers of, of health outcomes. You know, the, the other parts of it, you know, you, you do have highly vulnerable populations and, and people who don't have a lot of social support. And you know, when, when you look at the, the kind of the curve of healthcare and you see about probably 1% of the population is driving about 30% of the cost, you know, the, the social determinants that are um, things you really have to worry about are also um, the, the kind of problems that can be um, attacked through design and attacked through different care models um, obviously, uh, you know, drugs are a hugely useful tool. Um, therapeutics are, are important and, and devices are incredibly important. And we're actually doing a lot right now at Penn um, to push our, more of our device innovations forward as well. But, you know, the fundamental care uh, delivery designs get at those, those drivers of cost in ways that some of the others, you know, probably can't. Even, even within drugs, you know, you have to take them for them to be effective. And when you have extraordinarily low adherence rates, you have to figure out how to drive adherence um, to get the outcome that you seek. Yeah, I think that was, thank you for that response. It was really helpful. And I, you know, I, there's this statistic that uh, we've been seeing a lot of lately, and it's it's been around and um, 
been uh, discussed and, and written about quite a bit, which is that in terms of the uh, outcomes of care, in terms of morbidity and mortality, uh, th- which you just mentioned, the social determinants of health and our behaviors uh, contribute to something like 60 to 70 percent of whether people will be healthy uh, and the cost of care. And so it's, it's not a small lever that you just raised, this whole issue of behavior and the social determinants of health, which also influence behavior, um, really contribute a significant amount to both outcomes and costs of care. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky. I, I get to work with some folks here like, like Kevin Volk and David Ash and Ritesh Patel. You know, these are, these are real leaders in the field of applying behavioral science to healthcare. And when you look at some of their work on increasing smoking cessation rates, you know, 3x or really dramatically increasing physical activity or changing what people do in terms of blood pressure control, you know, th- this work is, is incredibly meaningful. And what they're doing is they're, they're applying these things we now know about behavior change, about how people make decisions. Um, there's, you know, wonderful work just in the, um, in the consumer and sort of the, the layperson space, you know, Dan Ariely has written wonderful books about this and, you know, Danny Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, I think it's kind of entering the, the, the public domain, especially after, you know, Richard Thaler won the, the Nobel Prize uh, recently thinking about nudge and, and with his incredible history and work on, on, on nudges that change behavior. You know, th- these are things that we're able to apply and change outcomes and change the course of disease. Um, we actually have the first nudge unit here at Penn now um, of any academic institution in the United States, and it's run by Mitesh Patel. And I remember right before we we, um, we really formally created that unit, uh, he had been working um, with David and Kevin on, on generic prescribing. And there's a history of trying to drive people towards uh, generic um, medications. They're, they're much less expensive, and um, because they're less expensive, people actually adhere to them and, and continue to take them. And there's good evidence that, along that direction. You know, but this history of education and training and information delivery that you should be using prescribing generic drugs didn't do much of anything to, to change the rate of generic prescribing. You know, Tesh comes along with that team and, and implements a, a wonderful nudge, which is a default, you know, default um, preference, it's often called, where the default simply becomes generics. So you're in the workflow of Epic, and, and now you go to prescribe a medication, and the default says at this point, um, you know, the generic instead of the brand drug. You know, and all of a sudden you see this incredible tick up uh, to 99%. Um, and that's, that's just a great example of how so sometimes small interventions can have big effects. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of tools now in that toolbox to start to change uh, change behavior, and, and we're getting better at using those tools. That, that's great. The um, the uh, nudge concept and the fact that you now have a, a clinic. So so that center, the nudge center, the nudge. What, so are you applying similar behavioral economic principles and techniques in other ways? Is that what that that center is going to do? Absolutely. Yeah, they've they've had a series of projects that have been uh, tremendously successful. And the generic meds was really only their first one. And I think just across Penn alone, it looks like if you extrapolate out, there's over $30 million of savings from that intervention. But they've gone from there to do things, uh, some of their projects that I'm, you know, they're popping into my head now. And after a heart attack, um, one of the things we know is that cardiac rehab 
does drive a significant decrease in mortality. I believe it's around a 30% reduction. And we had a very low referral rates to cardiac rehab um, before that group got involved. And the latest results that I saw, and that one went from about a 15% referral up to about an 80% referral. So, you know, big changes, not, not small changes. They've worked on statin prescribing. Um, they've actually worked with uh, Kit Delgado, another colleague uh, in, uh, who's a wonderful researcher in, a, in an emergency room physician on opioid prescribing. You know, there's a, a great insight there that there's quite a few um, left over after opioids were prescribed. And, and you look at um, what was being prescribed, and the numbers were quite high. Um, and so they they did a, a bunch of things in that case to, to kind of change the prescribing behavior. First, defaulting differently to other other drugs. You know, trying to start with things like ibuprofen, but then when it did come to opioids, um, you had to opt out to get to a higher prescription number of pills. And, and just by changing the default number of pills, you could see. You know, pretty strong reductions in, in the number of pills left over, which we know is a, is a driver that leads to addiction when there, when there are pills that people can get, you know, when, when kids or others can go into your medicine cabinet and, and find pills that were never used. Yeah, it, it, it's clear, um, and this power of, uh, behavioral economics, these, these tools and techniques are, as you're pointing out, are incredibly powerful and just huge levers to change behavior. And, and in these cases, you're, you're, I mean, that's an amazing number. You, you know, just, uh, discussed the fact that the changing, uh, physician prescribing behavior to use generic medications, uh, prescriptions saved the system something like $30 million. And that's just one change that you're making amongst many. So it's not only cost savings. It sounds like it's life saving too, as you were just alluding to with the cardiac rehab referrals and increasing that rate from 50 to 80 or so. You know, it's funny that, you, you know, I think thinking about both is important. Economics are obviously critical. There's, there's a huge need to be financially viable. I, I think the things that are motivating both to clinicians, researchers, and, and most of the people you work with um, in health systems is to, is to do something that's meaningful, to make a meaningful difference and have that kind of positive impact that improves people's health outcomes and, and, and improves their lives. And so I think that when we, when we do this kind of work, we try to keep both in mind all the time. Right. You know, both the economics, but also, um, you know, the, the other types of suffering and, and the types of outcomes that people are trying to achieve. Roy, so when you're working with these experts, now you, you come from a background clearly where you were dealing with consumer engagement and, you, you know, at least when you were uh, an executive leading a Quicken team, the numbers were really important, I imagine. How do you see the similarities or differences between the way you thought about uh, consumer engagement or customer engagement and patient engagement are they are they the same exact thing or are there some differences between patient engagement and activation and consumer engagement and activation well that's a, that's a great question you know there's there are certainly a lot of similarities um you know some when we get back to behavioral science we think about the fact that people make these mistakes, these cognitive errors, and they make them somewhat predictably, uh, predictably, you know, you see the same thing in finances and savings as you do in health. Um, and some people use this term hyperbolic discounting, where we over discount the future uh, and make, you know, one type of errors just that way, where we're, where we're sort of overly focused on the present. You, you know, you certainly, I'm sure everyone's read about low savings rates and, and the fact that people do get involved in impulse spending and, and end up not saving some of the money that they want for their retirement and their rainy day, but that's way off in the future. 
And anyone in healthcare can hear that story and think about the same types of decisions or people do or maybe fail to make uh, in terms of their health. You know, it's, mm. it's the immediate gratification. I, I want to eat that or taste that or, or smoke that right now. Um, of course, the implication, the, the, the pain, the suffering, the punishment are, are out in the future, and that's, that's discounted. So there's, there's actually quite a few things that are similar in terms of the way um, people, everyone, um, thinks about or, or fails to think about the consequences of, of actions. You know, in, in terms of engagement, I think a lot of the techniques are, are very similar. You know, interventions have to be highly salient. They have to be, you know, present and top of mind, and you have to remove as much friction as you can possibly move, uh, remove, right? The, the, um, the essence of behavior change in, in some ways, some of the um, choice architecture and behavior change designs is, you sort of put more friction in the path that you do not want people to take and, and you remove that friction from the path you do want people to take. Very similar in software design and, and very similar in, in uh, consumer products in, in general. You know, the harder something is to do, um, the less people are going to do it. And so making, making the right thing easier uh, is a big part of, the, is, of effective change. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's interesting. That goes back to exactly what you were just talking about with the nudge factor and, uh, you know, there's this classic, uh, example of the nudge factor, uh, people donating their body parts if they've been killed in an accident, right? And, and some countries, the rate is less than 5%. People, you know, check off the box on the back of their license. Yeah. And in some countries, it's a nearly a hundred percent that people, you know, have, uh, are willing to donate. And the only difference is exactly this factor in the countries that uh, people are willing to donate. The, the box is uh, defaulted. If you don't do anything, the box says, I'll donate. Right. Um, and so it's literally, and people just don't bother to change it because they're okay with that. Uh, but if you, if you have to make it, uh, and this is, I mean, literally just checking a box, right? Yeah. So if you have to, you know, turn your license over when you get it and check the box to say, yeah, I'm willing to donate, that's enough of friction to prevent something like over 90% of people from doing that, even though if it was already checked, they would be fine with that. Oh, yeah. And so, right. I mean, it's just incredibly, um, I think it's just such an incredible, uh, understanding to, to that. If you, if people have to do things, um, if there's friction, as you put it, people are, are, are going to take the, uh, the path of least resistance, whatever that path is, as long as they're okay with it, as long as it's not in conflict with who they are and what they're about and what they believe in. That's right. And so, Right. I mean, so here you are, you know, as you're talking to Roy, I'm thinking uh, the, the 401k comes to mind because you're right. People, generally speaking, did not save as much as they should. But then you put in a 401k, which automatically uh, mm. deducts this from your salary and people begin to save and they're OK with it because it's the right thing to do. Is there a and I never really had this thought before, but is there a 401k equivalent in healthcare? I'm not talking about a, a health savings account. I'm, you know, in a high deductible health plan. I'm talking about, you know, is there a way to, like you say, make it so that automatically we put we put something into our health account, our actual health? I'm just, have you ever thought about it that way? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in this realm I think about. You know, it's, it's funny, that story you told on organ donation, it, it's, you know, it's usually slightly more complicated than the stories that come across, across in, in, in public, right? You know, even in that case, I believe, in reality, you know, that's like organ donation registration, not actually organ donation, mm -hmm. uh, is my understanding of that research. Sure. And, in fact, 
you know, I think Dan Ariely might be the one who presented that as sort of, you know, the, the checkbox that either says check here to donate or check here to, to not be a donor. And I think, and in fact, I think there was a little bit more playing around with friction in that case, right? You need to actually call a government agency to say, you know, I don't want to do this. You know, so, so it was very intentional design that you have to think about, um, in these cases, which, um, which do affect behavior. You know, the, the way that I've been talking about it with, with the team lately is we, we do a lot of, um, things that now put, you know, put effort back on the patient. We, we, we sort of, we force patients to assemble their own healthcare. You know, we, we had this conversation recently, um, with one of our teams who's working on something we call, um, ERAP, which is if, if you know the ERAS protocols, you know, the enhanced re- uh, recovery after surgery, mm-hmm. there's ev- evidence-based practices um, that happened before, during, and, and, and after a, a procedure that returns the body to a healthy state um, more quickly if they're followed. And remember, the, the first work we did in that case was actually in uh, colorectal surgery. And there was a number of behaviors that people were supposed to do, right? So you're supposed to take antibiotics during bowel prep, and you're supposed to do a certain kind of skin prep before the seat procedure, and a couple hours before you're supposed to drink some Gatorade. Um, and those were all, you know, behaviors that were, were believed uh, strongly with some evidence behind them to, uh, to change the outcome of that surgery. I remember that almost nobody, I think we had 0% who were doing all three of those particular behaviors. Um, one of our surgeons, Dr. Mahmood, who's, who's the head of colorectal surgery, said, well, why don't, why don't we do the work for them? Why don't we assemble what's called a game plan bag? And, and uh, one of the women on my team, a woman named Stacey Hirsch, who did a great job leading this project, um, worked with a number of uh, folks uh, across the system. Actually, this came out of one of our hospitals, Pennsylvania Hospital, Dr. Alan Barr and Stephanie Diem, and then uh, came to the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, which is our, our main hospital. Um, and this evolved into a game plan bag where basically all that work was done for them. They would assemble these things into a bag with very simple instructions. So, so the patient no longer had to assemble their own care. You know, all of a sudden you see the all three behaviors going from 0% complete to 64%. And then they added sort of, you know, back to the, the world of engagement and meeting people where they are, text messaging, because they, they understood that and they, they heard from folks who were still not completing all the behaviors that they were nervous and their mind was on the surgery and they, they were afraid of things that were to come and they would forget even simple things they had to do. And so adding text messaging on top of just this bag that assembled all the, the pieces for you got them to 100% compliance with all the behaviors. You know, and, and I think that's just, it's, it's a simple way of thinking about, wait a minute, we're putting work back on this patient for things that they have to do to get to a good outcome, and now we're increasingly held responsible for the outcomes. So I think we have to do more work to help them. We have to do more work to make it easier for patients, and again, easier to do the, the right thing, uh, you know, instead of maybe the, you know, the thing that used to be the easiest thing. And this this whole world of behavior change, I one of my colleagues, and it might have been Kevin Volpe or David Ash, I forget who, once sort of taught me to think of this this world of behavior change almost as a pyramid, where as you get towards the top, it's more stringent, right? At the very top, you might have something like environmental or structural control. In other words, there is no choice, right? So after years of trying to eat fewer sweets, you know, finally get them out of your kitchen, and if they're not there literally funk they're just not in your environment then you won't eat them you know and i i think that this idea of like portion control you know why some people really prefer the 
the tiny little yogurts that are a much higher price per unit, right? But if that's all that's there, that's all you're going to eat. And so that's like towards the top of that pyramid, but we have things that, you know, basically say, gee, it's really hard to use willpower. It's really hard to consistently change your, your behavior. How do we change your environment? And you can kind of click down from the top of that pyramid to giving a little bit of more freedom and choice, things like default preference, where you make the thing you want people to do the easiest default, you know, the easiest one to take. And so, you know, I think that those, those types of designs are incredibly powerful, you know, across, across the board, you know, and almost everything we do is thinking about that, you know, reduction of friction, making it, you know, what we want people to do is sort of a natural part of their existing flows uh, and, and removing the work that we used to, you know, and, and continue in many cases to put on, put on the patient. Yeah, that, that was, I actually, uh, I think that was, I don't know who came up with the model. I think that group, but David, I read an article by David Nash, who, uh, David Ash, who, um, rather who, uh, had an illustration where at the bottom it's, you do a, a, an activity by yourself, like taking a medication for high blood pressure and it's the pill bottles in your bathroom and no one sees it. And so it's kind of an isolation and that's the lowest level of social engagement or influence. The next level is you put the pill bottle in the, in the kitchen so people can see whether you're taking it or not. And so you've got a little bit of social influence. The next one is someone actually uh, sort of nudging you or, or being accountable with you and uh, mentoring you. And then the next higher rung is, um, is actually some sort of reciprocal mentoring. Like uh, we're going to go to the gym together and we're going to keep each other accountable. And so that's our pack together, whether it's with yeah. one person or a group or, you know, a, a team or, or even a company. And then the highest rung was the one you just mentioned where it's actually built into the social fabric and the processes. And then, and it could include incentives or disincentives. And so it's just part of the structure. And so that's, uh, that's powerful. You know what strikes me as you're talking, and and, I, and and this is why you know I've been reading about behavioral economics and and this work that that you all are doing at UPenn for years. But hearing you talk about it really brings it to life. And you know, I think fundamentally, putting aside the the impact and and the and the technical parts of what you're doing, just what you're doing is really remarkable. I mean, you're putting a flag uh, and and creating a space for something that didn't have a space before; it wasn't recognized. So. And what I mean by that is uh, across the country in, in, in healthcare institutions, uh, we are constantly having initiatives. There's content, there's things to be done. And typically it'll be something like, a, <clears throat> excuse me, like a message or a communication, some sort of instruction around it. And then there's the expectation people are just going to do it. Right. And yeah. what you've inserted, <clears throat> you and your colleagues uh, at, at Penn Med is the understanding that it, it just doesn't work that way. And we, we know it doesn't work because we can see the numbers in terms of behavior right. change or adherence, whether you're talking about a patient uh, having to do something as you were just talking in, in the pre and post-surgical domain to improve their outcomes, or whether you're talking about a, a physician or other providers in terms of their behaviors. And so you've, you've created this large, large step in the middle, which says that we, we have to be smart and really use the science we have in behavior change to, to, uh, to really make this behavior happen in a, in a sustained way. And you're not only saying it and creating the, um, uh, ways, the techniques to do it, but you're actually demonstrating that it works and it really works in a very powerful way with the numbers you're showing. Is that, I mean, to me, that's just, that's the biggest part of what you're doing is that you created this new, um, 
this new world of behavior change in, in that really, for the most part, I, I just, you know, I don't see it happening. And so what, what are your thoughts about that? So, you know, I, I think, again, we, we sort of stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, I, I don't know how much we're creating, but we're definitely translating. And we're, we're certainly creating new knowledge. You know, we're trying to expand our understanding of what does and doesn't work and in what context. And I'm incredibly lucky to be working with the people I'm working with who, who really are, are, are some of the best at this anywhere around. But, you know, I, I do think it, it's a combination of factors that, that's coming true right now that's allowing this to, to work. Right. So one is even the reality of having um, Epic in place, for example, an electronic medical record. You know, the, the fact that we had a defined workflow that we could insert a new intervention into, like the generic prescription intervention I talked about, you know, that means that you can have a drop down that can have a default on it. So in other words, I know the workflow, I know the path people are going to follow, and, and that gives me um, opportunities that we didn't have before. Um, so I think, you know, the, the evolution of technology is certainly helping us along this path, you know, and I, I think that there's, you know, th there's a lot more going on too, in terms of understanding patient experience and, 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 you know, in some ways just the payment models changing. I think that when, when the payment model changes and, and you become more and more accountable and more risk bearing, um, the need to, to pay attention to outcomes is obviously um, accelerated and heightened. <laughs> so um, in that world where all of a sudden you bear the risk and the, and the responsibility um, for, for worse outcomes, um, it does force you to, to adopt new tools and to think differently about how we, how we um, go about designing experiences for our patients. Uh, so I, th I think it's a, it's a great time to be, to be, you know, in the space, um, you know, working on these things. Yeah, I also think, you know, it's the, the models that I see being truly effective. The, the behavior change part is one piece of it, right? The, the, the other thing, and, you know, again, I'll give a, a shout out to, um, to Kevin Volpe and David Ash, my colleagues here. Um, with they, they and, and actually our, our system CEO, Ralph Muller, wrote a paper, it was a while back now, so right around the time I was starting, um, and they, they labeled it automated hovering. Um, but this concept of kind of being with the patient in an ongoing way, knowing what was going on with that patient, not just when they were in the hospital with us, but to create new touch points where you actually could change behavior. So, you know, if we're trying to change physical activity or change um, whether people are taking their medication we need to know what's happening with them all the time when they're at home, when they're outside, you know, living their life. They, they have this term, the other 5,000 hours, which was a nod to the fact that people are only, even very sick people are often only with us a few hours a year, but they're, they're living and awake another 5,000 hours every year. And the, the kind of the model and the concept that evolved out of that thinking that we've been applying pretty consistently for five years now is how do I, even see and know about the things that I need to see and know about to keep people healthy, right? And so a lot of that had to do with um, devices, with, with scales and, and Fitbits and blood pressure cuffs in the home, like glucometers, inhalers, you know, pillboxes even. And once you have that data streaming back from the patient and from their environment, um, it, it does a few things. One, you can actually see how they're doing, so you can course correct. Um, but the other is it gives you some, some levers that you can now say, okay, I, I actually have some more tools that I can apply behavior change 
methodologies too. Um, so I, I think that it was the, the leveraging of technology um, and more the contextual insights of what's really going on in these in these um, in these situations and the reality of, of people living their lives and combining that with the behavior change uh, methods that really really is impactful. Right. I, well, I think you know one one point to mention in this is with the technology, and you use the word you know technology enabling. If you just throw technology though, and, and I'm curious as to what you think about this. It seems to me if you're if you're not mindful of the behavioral side of it, you're, you're just you're just adding a tool in there, uh, and 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 it's not being guided by you know the heuristics of behavior change. You may not get what you know the outcomes you want, and uh, in fact, you may be causing more friction. And I, I actually think one of your colleagues, Ezekiel Manuel, just just wrote an article in the last month or two. It might have been in the Wall Street Journal, or uh, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, either that or the New York Times, and. And he talked about this exact issue is that technology in and of itself being connected in that way, it, it's a good thing, but it, it's, it's, it's important, but it's not sufficient. And, and you have to use and, and design it in a way that, uh, the behavior, as you say, the choice architecture leads people to do the healthful thing. Do, do you agree with that or? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think technology is not equal to innovation in my mind. I mean, Technology might be invention, right? You know, bringing new things into the world. But innovation to me, when I use the term innovation, I mean the ability to capture value from new things. Um, and yeah, if, if you don't design it in a way that people will use it, it won't work. If you, um, you know, if, if it's too complicated, people certainly won't use it. But, but to your point, it's, it's more than that, right? You know, and it's not always the coolest technology that has the biggest impact. When I think about our projects that have really had, uh, you know, big measurable impacts, Sometimes it's the simplest technology of all, you know, texting algorithms, right? So we, we, um, took one project where, uh, we heard the top driver of seven day readmissions and, uh, morbidity among maternal population was, was, you know, postpartum preeclampsia. And they had tried, that group had tried a number of different in- interventions from free walk-in clinics to, you know, phone call follow-ups with these patients. To try to get their blood pressure, obviously it's like all hypertension. There's, there's not really symptoms until it's too late, and so you're trying to get blood pressure values so you know when things are going off the rails, and really nothing was working. Yeah, you know, the team that that we worked with here was embedded in um, in a women's clinic. This was uh, you know, some some wonderful uh, wonderful clinicians, Cindy Srinivas and Dee Hirschberg, uh, working. We have a, a, a woman now who's the actual director of women's health who did this project, Katie Mirage on, on our team. And Katie and Sindhu working with a D basically designed an intervention that was sending women home with uh, an off the shelf blood pressure cuff. So not a wireless, no, no broadcasting streaming, you know, cool high tech cuffs here, just a regular old blood pressure cuff and evolved a texting algorithm in, in a, in a pattern of, of texting with the women where they could actually get them texting back their blood pressures. Right. This allowed us to, along with some clinic redesign work, so who is going to do what with that information, to design a, a new care model, essentially. Right. It is a connected model. You know, it, it makes it really easy. They're just using text. A lot of times, you know, people don't even necessarily want to talk to you, but they'll, they'll work asynchronously. They'll, they'll text you a, a value. Um, and so once you say, okay, if you see this value, you'll do this action, which the, the team implemented on the clinic side, this went from being the highest driver of readmissions morbidity to, to essentially being able to keep the entire population safe. And you know, we went from having 
You're supposed to have about two blood pressure values in that first week post-discharge. We had that essentially for nobody. Uh, after the intervention, they had it for 85% of women they have this for now. And, you know, the number of readmissions and strokes has dropped dramatically, um, you know, nearly to zero. And so, you know, this, this type of, this way of working doesn't involve, in that case, um, a lot of very fancy technology. It's SMS texting and an off-the-shelf blood pressure cuff. But what you do with it and understanding that you need to understand the reality of the woman's life and how, you know, what will get her to respond and the clinic, right? Because if you're just monitoring and you have perfect monitoring, but nobody changes their behavior based on an information coming and nothing changes, right? If everyone was, was texting back their blood pressures, but the clinic wasn't able to respond and we weren't able to do anything different with that information, then you, you still would not be keeping women safe. So it's, it's to understand the clinic and the workflow, which, which that team did brilliantly, um, that actually responds to those changes and, and actually changes the outcome in the course of the disease. And that's that's the impact we're really looking for. Well, I, and I think this is such an important lesson, an important point, which is, to me at least, the take home is that many of us start with the technology and and the tool and say, wow, this is so shiny and bright and so cool. And so we, we kind of go with that, lead with that. And then after the fact, we'll kind of figure out what the workflow and process and people part is. And, and for me, it seems like you start with the problem and the friction people are having. And so it really is, as you talk about, it's, it's, you know, human centered design, it's the user experience, but you're, you're really starting from that perspective of what's the friction. What, as you, I love the term you use choice architecture and how do you create something uh, that that facilitates the right choices, and and then you you literally the technology is there. Uh, there's lots of options, and like you say, you pull it off the shelf and take the you know the easiest technology that are the most optimal for that problem. But it is a very different way of of going about designing solutions. I mean, that's, it's definitely yeah. it's definitely problem first. In fact, I think I stole this line. You know, I was so lucky to get to work with the leaders at, at Intuit, you know, guys like Scott Cook and you know, Brad Smith. And I, I love to give the shout outs to the names is because I, I feel like I've learned so much from the people that I've worked with over the years. But, you know, those guys, you know, used to have this line and I'm sure they still do. You fall in love with the problem. You don't fall in love with the solution. And this, this idea of falling in love with the problem and getting really deeply embedded, going out to where that patient lives, understanding what their context really looks like, understanding what solutions they're trying and why those existing solutions fail and don't work. You know, it's, it's those observations that kind of set us on the path of being able to do truly, you know, high impact innovation work now in healthcare. And my favorite things, you know, I think my team would say, you know, I always love the surprise. You know, I always love the aha. And every single project I can think of, you know, there, there was always something where you just kind of shake your head and say, man, I can't, you know, that, that was shocking. I just can't believe that. We didn't, we never knew that before. You know, I remember we were doing, you know, this kind of work with early mobility, right? You know, everyone wants to get patients up and walking early ambulation, which we know is related to better outcomes now. And, you know, I think there was this historical view of rest and recover, you know, kind of been discredited probably a while back. But, you know, we, now we know it's it's move and recover. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we started to do some of the interventions there and some of the, some of the research and, and um, you know, it's... It's our version of ethnography or, or cultural anthropology. We were doing good embedded observational research. And we're finding things like the patient doesn't even realize they have permission to leave their room. Right? You know, the hallways are more designed for clinicians than they are for walking patients. 
Yeah. So, so to, to not realize that, you know, the patients didn't realize that they actually could, could leave their rooms is, is just shocking. And it's remarkable. And you, you sit there and you think, huh, okay, <laughs> that's, that's a good one. And now I have something to build on, you know, and I think in, in almost all of these cases, um, there has been that, you know, that insight that says, wow, there, there's something there we can build on to, to do it really differently. But it starts with that deep understanding of the problem. That's, that's really helpful. And, and I, I love that, um, that concept or that phrase. Um, I, I think, uh, if, 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 uh, listeners to the podcast remember nothing else, they should remember that, that the lesson you learned it into it, um, fall in love with the problem, not with the solution. Is that it? Yeah, absolutely. Fall in love with the problem. We, um, you know, we often, it's funny, we often, um, you know, solutions are attractive, they're seductive. And even when we started here, we were doing, we had a program that now is called the Innovation Accelerator Program. Uh, when it started, it was called the Innovation Grant Program. And, you know, I, I find the need to change the name pretty humorous, actually. You know, we, we come in, I didn't know, I didn't have a background in healthcare. And I frankly didn't realize that grant had a very specific meaning, right? So if, if you're applying for a grant and you win, um, you know, you're expected to execute on your plan. You're expected to do what you said you were going to do. And that really is falling in love with the solution, right? That's really falling in love with the thing that you set out and thought was a good idea. But innovation doesn't work that way, right? And the reality of innovation is you have to figure out what works by trying and doing a lot of contextual experimentation. You know, so we've tried to build this, this culture of, of rampant, uh, you know, rampant and rapid experimentation. And so, you know, the, the need to say, this is not a grant program. This is not, you know, apply with an idea and then you win and you go execute the idea. It's actually apply with an idea that we find attractive that also reveals a really compelling problem that needs to be solved and then shift to focusing more on the problem and be willing to change direction, you know, and, a lot of the methods that we teach are these very fast experimentation methods, right? So it's how do you do in a few hours or days at, at a few hundred dollars or maybe a couple thousand dollars, what maybe used to take months or years and, and maybe millions of dollars. And so that, that way of taking experimentation and shrinking it down to do really, really quick generation of evidence so you can, you know, get, get off of whatever you were stuck on. You, you can evolve your thinking past that original initial idea that got you excited in the first place, that really is what is changing um, how innovation works around here. Yeah. You know, I, you know, Roy, I, I have so many questions for you. I, I would, I had wanted to really explore your, you know, kind of what it, it sounds like a super rapid design cycle and your, your uh, accelerator uh, approach to innovation. Uh, and I also wanted to hear about the, uh, other uh, initiatives you've worked on both in, you know, medication adherence, but I, I think I promised uh, to get you uh, off uh, the line and, and uh, onto your next meeting. So I'm going to hold myself to that. What, um, you know, as I'm listening to you again, the work that you're doing uh, is, is so exciting. And, and more importantly than that, I, you know, if we talk about creating a new healthcare, this has got to be front and center in that uh, the, the rapid designing really understanding the problem, really addressing it, not falling in love with the solution, using uh, the cutting edge, uh, most effective forms of behavior change uh, for everyone, whether provider or patient or systems, all this needs to be part of the future of healthcare, it needs to be part of the present of healthcare. We need it today. We needed it yesterday. Uh, 
it doesn't exist everywhere. You talked about your group, maybe not necessarily creating everything, but definitely deploying it, translating it, as you put it. And I love that. We think of translational science in terms of clinical uh, bench science, but you've actually, you know, you and your colleagues are doing that in care delivery, really translational uh, science there. How, how do we get this to the rest of the, the community out there, the national and inter- international community? Is that part of your work as well? It is, and we, we try to get out and, and shout about the work and, and publish, you know, using some traditional publishing channels as well as some, some um, newer ones. You know, we're always happy to talk to folks, and, and we see this, this kind of work going on in, in a lot of systems. I mean, I, I actually am quite optimistic because when I, I look across leading systems now, I, I am seeing a lot of people applying, you know, human-centered design principles, hiring more designers into their organizations, you know, really, like we said, falling in love with the problem and, and being willing to iterate and not just go execute and, and implement the first idea as if it's the best idea. You know, these these changes are things that I'm seeing now in leading systems on, on both coasts and in the middle. So um, I, I think that we're, 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 you know, on a good path at the moment. Um, and just the fact that it's being appreciated, that, that this type of thinking is being appreciated um, is really meaningful to me. And I do think there's there's more work to do because, you know, a, a lot of the innovation work is probably not yet the work that um, will get published or, or p- potentially get certain um, junior faculty promoted. So we have work to do on both what are the journals and what are sort of the, the standards of um, good academic work in this space. Um, and I think that'll help it get out. Um, uh, but I do think that just continuing this discussion and, and being as public as we can with uh, what we're learning and We've talked with uh, groups that range from IHI to just lots of other networks of, uh, of innovation leaders and, and making sure that we're doing this in a collegial way is, I think, is helping. Well, Roy, I, you know, I just want to, I, I, I promised you I'd get you off, so I'm, I'm going to try to do that. But I want to thank you so sincerely. This has been just so enlightening uh, for me, and I've been reading about this and studying and engaged in this area for years. And I've learned uh, a bunch just from talking to you over the last few minutes. So thank you for being here. Uh, and I hope that we have a chance to uh, to have you on this uh, podcast again sometime soon and in service of getting your and your colleagues' messages and your work out there. Well, thank you, Zev. I, I really enjoyed talking to you and I'd love to come back and we can uh, tell some of the stories about specific projects. That'll be, uh, that'll be fun to do as well. Well, let's, let's definitely do that. Thanks again, Roy. Okay. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.